1: Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com, and today we have a really interesting guest. Dr. Liz Powell is a licensed psychologist, coach, and sex educator, specializing in non-traditional and non-monogamous relationships. Dr. Liz helps couples and singles become more confident in who they are and communicate more effectively with their partners, and she believes that great sex can change the world. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Dr. Liz. Thanks, Sumatya. I'm excited to be here. So glad to have you. So tell us, how did you find your way to non-monogamy?
0: I have had a very uh, twisted path to non-monogamy. In high school, I had my first non-monogamous relationship. So I was part of a dating quad when I was 17. And I kind of always had a part of me that knew that monogamy was not a great fit for me. But I spent a lot of time in my late teens and early 20s feeling like I had to do what cultural norms demanded of me uh, or else I wouldn't be able to find anyone or find any love. So I ended up getting married at 23 to a man who was almost 10 years older than me. And we were theoretically not supposed to be fully monogamous. We were supposed to have uh, an opening for threesomes with other women, but uh, he struggled a lot with that. And so it ended up being effectively monogamous. And, since he and I separated in 2008, I've been fairly certain that non-monogamy is the right path for me. So aside from a couple of short blips here and there, I've been pretty dedicated in my non-monogamy ever since.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So um, can you uh, describe a little bit more about why your hubby struggled with it, why it was hard for him? Um. That's a,
0: it's a challenging question. Uh, the agreement that we had, as I said, was we would have threesomes with women uh, because I identify as bisexual or queer, and I didn't want to agree to a relationship where I was no longer going to be able to have sex with um, people who were women or who were vulva havers. Um, we had one vulva threesome. havers. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we had one That's a good one. I like it because it's, you know, not all women have vulvas, not all people with penises are men. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so anyway, so we had one threesome uh, just before we got married with a mutual friend of ours and I thought it had gone really well and she thought it had gone really well and he was upset about it because there was a period of like five or 10 minutes where she and I were getting to know each other because we had never had sex mm-hmm. before before. And he had had sex with each of us individually. Uh, And he felt very excluded and left out that he was not directly involved in those five to 10 minutes. And so at any point after that, when we would, when I would be working on arranging a threesome for us, he would uh, initially be okay with it and say that he was not in the mood or he would at the last minute say that he didn't want to do it uh, and bail
1: on all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that's pretty common when couples decide they want to open their relationship that they tend to often, not all the time, but um, a large percentage of couples want to find a woman that they can both play with equally, and they have all this investment in it being really equal. And that's really hard to do, don't you find?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just statistically speaking, the percentage of the population that are women who are bisexual that you will find attractive and who will be attracted to you and attracted to both of you equally. It's statistically <laughs> remarkable that it ever actually happens. So I, I think that what, what I wanted was some way to be able to have sexual variety. And the only way that I could negotiate that in the space that I was at at 23 and with the, the challenges I had with asserting myself was to agree to this kind of threesome based structure And for him, from a monogamous mindset, the only acceptable way for your spouse to have sexual variety is if you are also involved in some way. And so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I was not able to be upfront and honest about what fits well for me, and he was not able to um, accept and and be happy with the kind of person that I am, we ended up making this compromise that probably wouldn't have suited
1: either of us even if it has mm-hmm. gone better. Very perceptive. So it sounds like you did a lot of work around finding your voice and being able to communicate who you really are and what you really want. And was part of that knowing that there were other options out there?
0: That was definitely a big part of it. Uh, my, my journey on that front and particularly in that relationship, we got married when I was so young. You know, we met just before my mm-hmm. 22nd birthday And Mm -hmm. I came from a family where boundaries were not always honored or cherished. And so I didn't have a lot of practice in knowing that I could have my own wants and needs and that that would be important and that that would be something that is respected and honored by the person I was having a relationship with. And I started graduate school in psychology uh, right after my ex-husband and I got married. And the process of graduate school for psychology is a lot of work on examining yourself and your own biases and your own patterns. And you do a lot of therapy work with your cohort uh, where you're providing therapy to each other. And the more that I became well-boundaried, the more that I asserted my own wants and needs, the less well that relationship worked. And one of the needs that I found that I had was to feel sexually wanted, to have diversity in my sexuality, whether that's diversity of partners or diversity of activities. I wanted to have opportunities for passion and flirtation and to let my slutty heart and my slutty body just run free. And the more that I accepted those pieces of me, the less that marriage could fit me.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. So what does your non-monogamy look like today?
0: I currently identify as solo poly. So for me, that means that no one gets to tell me what to do with my body, my heart, my time, or my mind. Um, Mm. A lot of people think that solo poly means folks only have very casual relationships or they're only looking for sex. Uh, That's not true for how I practice it. I want to have mm-hmm. deep, meaningful, intimate relationships that are committed and long-term and that are based on mutual assurance of each other's autonomy. I want to have relationships mm-hmm. where we support each other in what the other person wants, um, even and especially if it's not what we personally want from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for me, I, I function best in relationships when I am given as much freedom as possible. The more that I feel that someone is trying to clip my wings, the harder I tend to rebel against it in ways that aren't particularly Mm -hmm. helpful in the long term. And so I've been Mm -hmm. much more mindful in the last couple of years uh, in how I speak to others about what I am available for in relationship and what works well for me in relationship that I don't set us up for failure.
1: Mm -hmm. And as you've started to practice solo what you call it, solo poly? Mm-hmm. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Uh, since yeah. you began to practice solo poly consciously, have you found that um, you'll be dating somebody and then they, like, run off into monogamy land, that they just kind of considered you as someone they were dating and didn't take it seriously because you didn't fit that default model of focusing on your one person as your be-all, end-all? <laughs>
0: I don't have many people who I date run off into monogamy land, mostly mm-hmm. because the majority of folks who I date have been poly for a long time and are, are very staunchly poly. Um, I have had some people uh, begin to, I think from an, like a subconscious place, begin to treat our relationship as less valid or less worthy of attention and time and effort than others because I mm-hmm. think that, Most of us don't know how to interact with someone in a way that is not moving towards greater dependence on each other, but that instead Mm -hmm. is focused on continually building autonomy. And so I think that when Mm -hmm. I say things to people like, I don't think I really want to live with partners, I especially don't want to share a bedroom with a partner, people hear that as, I don't want our relationship to become serious, because they're still very attached to that relationship escalator model of how relationships are supposed to go. That relationships mm-hmm. only go in one direction. If you aren't continually advancing upward, then there's something wrong and you have to break it off and start over. Um, and that's not how I practice my relationship.
1: And so have you had to educate some people that you're involved with about that because they feel like you're not valuing them? I have had to some. Um,
0: I think that one of the challenges of dating while solo poly is that a lot of people, so there are different ways in which people will use solo poly identification. Some people are solo poly and they identify that and expect that they will continue to identify that for the foreseeable future. Some people identify as solo poly when they are taking a break from other styles of relationships or when they are currently single. And so Mm -hmm. Because there is not, because the term can be used in multiple ways, I often have to explain to people what it means to me and how that affects my relationships with them.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like there's a lot of communication that needs to happen. Um, it's one of the criticisms of non-monogamy is like, oh, you guys must just do a lot of processing. <laughs> how do you respond to that criticism? My response to that criticism
0: is, frankly, I think people in monogamous relationships need to communicate more. They don't process really right. enough. Uh, when I talk to folks who are monogamous or I teach classes on um, relationship skills, I ask people who identify as monogamous how many of them have discussed with their partner what monogamy means for them, like what activities mm. are and are not cheating, Because if you look at the surveys of people who say that they are monogamous, there is a huge range in behaviors that are considered cheating or considered perfectly acceptable. And a lot of it depends upon the person who's making that assertion. So while some people may consider porn cheating, others don't even consider sex cheating if it's in a different city and their partner never finds out. (laughs) So when we look at how people from the mainstream mononormative culture approach processing and relationships, there's kind of this, if I don't talk about it, it's not a real problem mindset that leads people to a lot more heartache and a lot more difficulty. You know, as a therapist, when couples come into my office, more often than not, the problems they're coming in with have been festering for so long that it is remarkably challenging to fix them. Because rather than Mm -hmm. addressing that problem when it first began to happen, they just pretended it wasn't there, pretended it wasn't there, allowed resentment to build, allowed for these narratives about who the other person is to continue building in their heads to the point that they could no longer salvage a relationship. If you Mm -hmm. wait until it is an emergency to talk about things, it is far harder to actually address
1: it and fix it. Mm -hmm. Good point. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk about um solo poly some more, but before we do, I want to go back a little bit to how did you get from this twenty three year old married woman who's trying to figure out how to share your lover to dating pretty much only people who already have poly experience? And how would someone new to poly find their way to that kind of life where they have experienced poly people to choose from? Sure.
0: I'm, I'm lucky right now that I live in the San Francisco
1: Bay Area where there is a
0: huge conglomeration of poly folks. Uh, and so mm-hmm. dating only experienced poly people is much easier in this area than it would be in many other areas. Um, mm-hmm. My personal journey, uh, when I, when my ex-husband and I split when I was 26, um, I immediately came out as non-monogamous and began dating multiple people. And I was already connected with some folks who were doing various sorts of non-monogamy. And so I was able to kind of get an in into those communities right away. I then went into the army in 2015 or 2010 and spent five years in the army and being non-monogamous while you're in the army is a little bit challenging because Mm -hmm. if folks find out, it can become problematic depending on Mm -hmm. what you're doing and
1: how and with whom. Um, And so so they, so they still have is, the they have they have the don't ask, don't tell for poly people in the military, huh? <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's worse than that actually, because don't
0: ask, don't tell was as long as you don't tell us about it, we're not going to prosecute you. Um, mm-hmm. In the military, in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, the UCMJ, which is the governing laws for all military branches, adultery is a crime, um, mm-hmm. and Adultery as a crime is technically hard to prove. They have to prove that you had sex with someone who is married and you were not their spouse. But inappropriate relationships are also forbidden in the UCMJ and also punishable. Mm. And inappropriate relationships are far easier to prove because what is considered an appropriate relationship is a much smaller scope than it is in the civilian world. Uh, part Hmm. of joining the military is that you volunteer to let go of some of the rights that you would have as a civilian. And so Mm -hmm. you agree to a much more stringent code of conduct, a much more stringent code uh, of how you will present yourself to the world. Um, Part of how I protected myself in those situations uh, was I always made sure that I was really great at what I did and that my command teams all knew me and appreciated the work that I was doing. Uh, in the mm-hmm. military, everything that happens that could receive command action or punishment is up to the judgment of your commander. So if your commander mm-hmm. knows you and likes you, they can be more lenient than if your commander already mm-hmm. thinks that you're a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also just was very cautious about how I spoke about my dating life at work. Um, and I had to be very cautious about who I dated because I was an officer and officers are not allowed to – date or have friendships with people who are enlisted. Um, mm-hmm. And that goes across branches. So even when I was stationed in Honolulu, where there's a huge military population, I had to be very cautious when I was dating to ask everyone if they were in the military and whether they were enlisted or an officer, because I couldn't yeah. have interactions with folks who were enlisted.
1: hmm Wow, so it's only been a couple years since you've been out of the military and free to choose whoever you want to be with?
0: I was still I still did a fair amount of choosing whoever I wanted to be with while I was in the military. I just had to do mm-hmm. so in a way that was a bit less uh, public and out than I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even towards the end of my time in the military, I opened my first private practice in Savannah, Georgia, Uh, oriented towards people who were non-monogamous and kinky. So anyone who found my website could probably guess that I was identified with those populations. Um, But, again, because my command team liked me, there was no reason for anyone to cause a problem. Hmm. Being out Mm -hmm. of the military though means that I can be on the Life on the Swing Set podcast and talk about the crazy sex I have at conferences um, and (laughs) be much more open about who I am and how dating works for me and what my relationship and sexual landscape looks like. Mm
1: -hmm. And how long have you been in the Bay Area?
0: So I moved back here right when I got out of the Army
1: in July of 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that doesn't feel like a very long time. So what tips can you give people who are new to non-monogamy that want to get involved with a community and have an opportunity to meet lots of people?
0: So I think that Biggest asset to me has been that I have spent a lot of time forming friendships and connections with people who are well-connected in the community. So getting to Mm -hmm. know some people, making some friends, um, most of the people who I date or who become lovers in my life are people I'm meeting through other friends. Um, Mm -hmm. There are are always lunches. There are generally get-togethers where you can meet other people who are similar to you or who share interests. And things like non-monogamy or kink and going and becoming a part of the community and getting to know people will help you have a greater pool of folks to rely on to help introduce you to people who are a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm at the point now where uh, I have a couple of lovers in particular who will send me a message and say, like, hey, you should meet this person. I think y'all would have a really good time together. And it's, mm-hmm. it's lovely to have people who are sharing and caring and who can help you meet those other folks. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of who the best folks for that are, if you can find people who um, are good at their poly skills and handle things ethically and are fairly slutty, the more people that someone connects with, the more likely it is they're going to meet people they want to connect you with. And that can be a really Mm -hmm. good way to continue building your community,
1: or it has been for me. Great. Thank you. Yeah, because that's a really common question I get when people are new to non-monogamy is, where do you meet other people? Because they don't know that such large communities exist. So um, we're lucky in the Bay Area, which is where I am as well. Um, But I think most major cities have meet-up groups and munches, like you said. Or people can start their own as well. (laughs) Right. And and it's... Okay. Go ahead.
0: There's non-monogamy everywhere. Um, Even if there's not already an organized group in your area, I can almost guarantee that there are folks in your area who are doing uh, non-monogamy. Peggy Kleinplatz, who's a sexuality researcher, uh, in her study looking at what makes for great sex in the long term and what uh, couples who have been together for multiple decades and report having great sex lives uh, say about their sex is that over half of them are not monogamous. So when we look at people who report having great sex and have been together for a long time, non-monogamy is actually common. So wherever Hmm. you are, there are probably people who are doing non-monogamy. You just may not know them yet.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've also found that in the swinger communities, there's a lot of crossover that um, there are poly people who also go to swinger parties or play parties, um, but, you know, they they may not present that way because, strangely, swinging sometimes is more acceptable than being poly. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's such a strange thing. Um, I almost feel like that maybe because the relationship escalator narrative allows for cheating in certain ways. Like there's this understanding that on the escalator you're probably going to cheat at some point, uh, but having emotional relationships is viewed as more problematic because then you're definitely Mm -hmm. not on that escalator. And so you're going much more Mm -hmm. strongly against mononormative values.
1: Right, and the mononormative value of, uh, you know, a couple goes to a swinger party, they have a good time, and then they go back home together. That seems to be more acceptable in our culture. Right, because we have a very couple-centric culture. There are
0: a lot of privileges Mm -hmm. that we afford people who appear to be part of a monogamous couple that you don't get Mm -hmm. if you're either not incoupled or in a couple that is not monogamous.
1: Right, right. So yeah, you're really taking on the social structure here, girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's let's one of my go. Big let's go back. Yeah. So let's go back to um, you identifying as solo poly. Um, what are some of the other common misconceptions about that?
0: Um, I think a big one is that like they just want casual sex. Uh, I love casual sex. There's nothing wrong with casual sex. It is not all that I want. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a big misconception that they are people who are afraid of commitment or not capable of commitment. Uh, Most of the people I know who are solo poly are interested in having committed relationships. They just don't want to be enmeshed in the way that many standard couple relationships tend to look. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a misconception that folks who are solo poly are (laughs) <laughs> like people who are just messed up or too messed up to have regular relationships. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: There may often be also a misconception that all of us desire sex at all. There are plenty of people who are asexual, who are solo poly. There are people who are aromantic, who are solo poly. Uh, solo poly talks to the way that we approach polyamory, not to how much sex we want to have. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there's also right. a lot of folks who – there can be some, um, some difficulty in distinguishing between people who are relationship anarchists and people who are solo poly because a lot of times they are looking for the same end goal. They may just take slightly different approaches to it. So in relationship anarchy, there is a specific idea that um, you do not – that you treat each relationship as its own individual entity uninfluenced by others, that you do not necessarily give romantic or sexual relationships more priority than friendship relationships or family relationships, uh, the way that our culture tends to privilege those relationships. Um, Mm -hmm. And so relationship anarchists often in practice can look very similar to solo polyamorous or very different Mm -hmm. from them. Um, Mm -hmm. I know some folks who identify as solo poly rather than relationship anarchists uh, because they've had negative experiences with some of the folks who use the label relationship anarchy. Um, but I think that they're both, they're both approaches that come to some of the same goals with slightly different uh, bases.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never heard the comparison between relationship anarchy and solo poly. So relationship anarchy includes all Of our relationships not just our romantic or sexual relationships that's that's a good point i hadn't thought about that before
0: yeah and it's um a lot of people who are good relationship anarchists will talk about how again in our culture it's not uncommon and it's a very common trope in shows and in movies where someone starts dating someone and suddenly doesn't have time for their friends anymore because it Mm -hmm. is obvious that even if you are in a new romantic relationship, that has automatic priority over a friendship Mm -hmm. that's been established for years. And so relationship anarchists instead break apart that convention and look at where they want to allocate their priority uh, without regards to whether it is romantic and sexual versus non-romantic or
1: non-sexual. Right, right, right. Um, And you said something earlier, you talked about, continually building autonomy. So can you speak more about that phrase and how the lack of enmeshment can lead to a healthy relationship? That is such a great question. Um, so in my personal
0: life I have found that as a, someone with a natural rebellious streak, uh, I often find that the big problem the, the biggest problems in my relationship, come from ways in which um, my partner or I try to force the other person to give us something that we want or need in a way that that person does not want to give us. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'll give an example. Um, A a year and a half ago or so, I was in a relationship uh, with someone who uh, I had asked to move in with me and we'd been sharing a bedroom and they wanted us to follow much more closely to common couple scripts than I found that I wanted to when we got there. Before we got to that point, I thought that maybe I would want to follow those couple scripts with that person. But as we started to do them, it didn't really fit for me. So when we came to that point of what this person wants and what I want are different, um, the reaction from my perspective as someone who is solo poly would be to try as best as I can to find a space to support the person in what they want, even and especially if it's not what I want. Um, Instead, Uh what happens um, in a way that creates greatest autonomy. So in that case, if what I wanted was for us to not share a bedroom anymore and what that person wanted was to share a bedroom, my approach in focusing on enabling autonomy would be to find a way to stop sharing a bedroom, maybe take a break for a bit to recalibrate ourselves, and then figure out where our relationship is from there. Mm -hmm. my goal in a relationship is to help my partners become the best version of themselves that they can be and to support them in what it is that they need for that to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times what my partners may need may be something that I don't personally want, but I would so much rather support them in what is right for them than try to force them to do something that would be right for me. I Mm -hmm. think that We often in a relationship act from places of fear and of uh, worry about loss, and we come from this space of scarcity and worrying that if we don't hold up on tightly, if we don't keep trying to make this happen, then we won't be able to get our needs met. And I think that it ends up driving a wedge in relationships that makes it much less likely that you'll get your needs met than if you had just been able to roll with that need for autonomy in the first place. So I want to enable mm-hmm. everyone in my life to do what's right for them uh, and to make the choices that are best for them. I can let them know mm-hmm. how I'll feel about it or how it might impact me, but I don't ever want someone to make a decision that mm-hmm. is wrong for them
1: just because it will make me feel better. Mm-hmm, right. Um, If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with Dr. Liz Powell of SexPositivePsych.com. And Liz works with uh, couples and singles who are, um, she specializes in non-traditional and non-monogamous relationships. So, and you have, obviously, you have a psychology degree and and, uh, counsel people. Um, So do you think that non-monogamy requires a pretty healthy psychological profile? Because I find that oftentimes when couples get together um, in traditional relationships, there are so many expectations that come with the package, like, expectations for security, expectations for the other person to validate their worthiness or to make them feel lovable, Um, so many expectations that we just automatically put on the other person. So do you think that healthy non-monogamy requires that people have done some deep soul-searching around those issues?
0: I think that healthy non-monogamy is easier the more work that people have done on themselves. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I would be hesitant to suggest that you have to be, like, a certain degree of health in order for Mm non-monogamy to work for you. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that what makes non-monogamy work well is understanding who you are, what does and doesn't work for you, and how to communicate that to a partner. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the more the more work you've done on those issues in general, on understanding yourself in general, on knowing your own patterns, on building your own healthy boundaries, on developing good communication skills, the easier non-monogamy will be. Um, I think for me personally, the concern that I have is that um, I don't want there to be any kind of feeling that if you – have a mental illness, or if you aren't particularly good at those things yet, that you shouldn't do non-monogamy. There may be some mm-hmm. people who uh, have different boundaries around how much skillfulness or how much experience they need from partners. Uh, for instance, because I'm a therapist and my whole job is emotional labor, I have a much lower threshold for how much emotional labor starts to feel like too much for me. Um, mm-hmm. I I tend to have boundaries that are much firmer and slightly further out than a lot of people might because I spend so much energy and labor uh, at work on helping people with these kinds of issues. And it's Mm -hmm. very easy for that kind of work at home to start to feel like work as well. Mm -hmm. However, there are plenty of folks who have a lot more availability and a lot more ability to support and to hold people who are still working those things out And so I think Mm -hmm. it's mostly about finding someone who has uh, the available energy and resources uh, and can support you through that journey. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Thank you. Um, So what are some of the other um, problems that you see uh, in how people do non-monogamy?
0: The biggest problem I see with how folks do in non-monogamy I think comes down to not using their no when they mean it. Most mm-hmm. of us when we were growing up were not socialized to tell people no. We were socialized to make people, people feel better or to go along with things. Uh, many of us have families of origin where we were actively punished for no's or where boundaries were not welcome. Uh, and as a result, most of us aren't good at letting people down, even when it's what we need to do to take care of ourselves. And so how I see this playing out is people will ask for things, their partner won't say no, but the partner will resent them or feel badly, and then it builds this pattern of uh, almost wishing that their partner was a mind reader. Like, how can you not tell Mm -hmm. that I don't want to do these things? How can you not know (laughs) what I need? (laughs) And even here in the San Francisco Bay Area, most folks are terrible mind readers. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: we tend to see that people aren't, letting other folks know what they need to take care of themselves and then are resenting the partner for not automatically doing it. Uh, And on the flip side, people often will um, try to ask their partners not to do things uh, because they're afraid of what they might have to change or what they might lose if their partner doesn't go along with it. So the most common instance Mm -hmm. I see here is with um, folks who use veto in their relationships. I personally, Mm -hmm will not date anyone if they have a veto power in their relationship. Um,
1: Can you define that for our listeners that may not know what that means?
0: Sure. So when I'm speaking about a veto in non-monogamous relationships, what I mean is that there are people in a relationship, two or more, who have agreed that any of them can at any time end a relationship that another of them is in um, without negotiation or, Um, without the input of the other people involved in that relationship. So we're going to use some names just to make it easier. Uh, If we have uh, Pat is dating Sam, Sam is also dating Lou. Uh, If Pat gets really uncomfortable with Sam dating Lou, Pat could say, Sam, you're not allowed to date Lou anymore, and Lou does not get a say in it. Mm a lot of times where these, these arrangements come from is the fear by the people who are in that primary couple or that primary relationship uh, that someone else will come along and threaten their status. Uh, and so I see this a lot of times where, uh, for instance, someone has started dating someone new that they really like a lot. And because Pat is worried that Sam might fall in love with someone else, they will preemptively veto it to avoid their own negative feelings. And Sam, because Sam agreed to it and feels like they should stick to their agreements, doesn't tell Pat that they will not agree to end that relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, When we look at how people use their yeses and no's in relationships, I think that when we are making our decisions out of fear and insecurity, we are much less likely to make decisions that feel good to us in the long term and that leads to, us and our partners feeling happy about them than if we're making our decisions from a space of supporting ourselves, doing what we need to do to take care of ourselves. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in that situation with Pat, Sam, and Lou, if Pat was feeling really insecure about Sam's new relationship with Lou, Pat might go to Sam and say, hey, you're really excited about this new person. You're so deep in new relationship energy. Uh, I'm feeling kind of neglected. Can you schedule some time with me so that we can have some good couple time?" Mm-hmm. Or they might go to Sam and say, I'm really uncomfortable with your relationship with Lou. I feel like Lou is a really problematic partner and is going to cause a lot of problems. Um, I, I value your ability to choose whatever you need to do for your life. And if you continue to date Lou, I may have to adjust what this relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. So the difference there is that when Pat has some skin in the game and has to actively ask for their own wants and needs, they're much more likely to create a structure that is helpful and easy than if they're able to just cut other folks out as soon as they feel insecure.
1: Right. There's not a lot of room for growth if, that, if there's that veto and, and you don't have to address those uncomfortable feelings and have those conversations that cause us to have to stretch emotionally.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that a lot of people are coming from a good place of like not wanting to feel really hard emotions it is really challenging Mm -hmm. the kinds of emotions that can come up in the course of non-monogamy and the thing is you can't actually legislate away a feeling there's no way to create a set of rules that will guarantee that you're never going to have to feel uncomfortable or that you'll never feel jealousy Mm -hmm. jealousy isn't a bad feeling there's nothing wrong with feeling insecure Feelings are never a problem. Feelings just give us information. And so if you're noticing those feelings coming up for you, it's a great opportunity to ask yourself what's going on, what is it that might help you, what are all of the different solutions available to you? And then using your yeses and noes in an appropriate way that are about yourself, your body, your mind, your time, rather than about what you're okay with someone else doing. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I remember when I was new to uh, open relationship, I would feel jealous, but then I would feel ashamed of myself for feeling jealous, and I wouldn't share about it because I thought that I should be more evolved than that, and so then it would just fester and uh, get really bad until I just wanted to kill everyone. So, <laughs> what would you say to somebody who's kind of new to non monogamy, um, who feels like, you know, they're They want to be more evolved than they are.
0: (laughs) So the thing is, even people who are really great at polyamory feel jealous. Jealousy Mm -hmm. as an emotion, I think I see a lot of this, like, goal to, like, never feel jealous again. That's just simply not realistic. If we set a goal as a human to never feel sad again, people would think that we were strange. If we set a goal Mm -hmm. as a human to never feel grief, well, that just means we're never going to get close to anyone who could die. So... Mm -hmm. I think that we need to reframe our goals and look instead at how can I best learn from and handle jealousy when it happens rather than should I have jealousy? What does it mean that I have jealousy? It's totally okay Mm -hmm. to feel jealous. There are people who have been Mm -hmm. doing polyamory for a really long time who still feel jealous frequently. The difference Mm -hmm. is not that they stop feeling jealous. The difference is that they've learned better tools for how to, to handle it and how to ask for what they need when that jealousy arises. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And I know for me, I have in the past been a very avoidant, uh, have had an avoidant attachment style. So when I felt jealous, I would just say, well, forget about you. <laughs> and what I've learned to do is to lean more into it. And it takes a lot of courage and practice to tell the person I'm feeling jealous. And then we can work through what my needs might be, and and I get to practice asking for those and um, develop trust with my partner that they really do want to hear them.
0: Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of great books out there that talk about this. Uh, Brene Brown's work is fantastic, and she talks a lot about how oftentimes when we're having those feelings that we want to shut down or push away uh, or control someone else, it's about our own fear of vulnerability that we're feeling Mm -hmm. like we're exposed and we're trying to find some way to feel less exposed when really Mm -hmm. the deep connection that we want and the intimacy we're looking for can only come when we allow ourselves to feel that and turn into it instead of away.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you. That's a good tip, Brene Brown. It's great. Um, So what are your top tips for people thinking about exploring non-monogamy?
0: So I think my first tip would be... um, Take some time to really think about who you are, how you show up in a relationship, and what it is that you offer to potential partners. A lot of people, when they're first starting in non-monogamy, especially when we talk about uh, heteronormative, straight couples who are starting to, like, look for their unicorn, uh, they talk a lot about what they want from someone, but they don't necessarily have a good understanding of what it is that they offer to someone. Mm -hmm. The thing about non-monogamy is that us dating someone doesn't limit our potential to date, so there are always plenty Mm -hmm. of people that we can date in non-monogamy. If what you're offering me is that you're able to date me and that's all that you have to offer, that is really easy for me to find. Um, If what you're offering is hot sex, there's tons of hot sex available. You need to have something else going for you. So think about what it is that makes you a good partner. What is it that makes you great to date? What is enjoyable about you? What is fun about you? Um, The next thing would be figure out as much as you can what your landmines are. What are the things that when they happen are likely to cause a serious reaction in you? Figure out how you tend to show up when you're feeling really angry or really hurt or really jealous. What are the tools that you tend to default to when you're having those more challenging emotions?
1: Last. I like that. That's a great question. What, I, I'm just going to validate you for that question. What are your landmines? It's a great self-exploration to discover what they are and then to be able to tell a new partner um, what to watch for. It's, it's, I love the way you said that, the way you phrased that.
0: Yeah. I think the last one I would say is figure out some good communication tools that work well for you. There are a plethora of communication tools available out there, and some work better for different folks. Um, Some people love nonviolent communication. Some people it doesn't fit well for them. Some people really enjoy using I feel statements. Some people it feels forced. So think about what the different communication tools are that you can use and get some practice using them because as soon as you feel upset, it's going to be much harder for you to use them as skillfully. So the more practice mm-hmm. you can get using those tools somewhere that you're more comfortable, the easier it'll be when you're upset.
1: Yeah, my uh, long-term partner and I, we um, we had we started using the timeout tool, and that made a huge difference. Where we ha- it took us a couple times of trying, but we had to agree that when one of us calls a timeout, that we really have to honor that as really like the most sacred agreement. That um, you got to stop talking when the other one calls timeout because it could lead to things that you regret. <laughs> so that was really helpful for us.
0: Absolutely. Timeout is a great tool, and I think really underutilized by folks uh, because it mm-hmm. seems so hokey and weird, but it's so mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, even if you just mm-hmm. give yourself time for your your sympathetic nervous system, your fight-or-flight response to die down, once that intensity mm-hmm. of emotion passes, it's far easier to communicate in ways that we're going to feel good about later.
1: Mhm. Great. Well, those are fabulous tips. Thank you so much. You've really thought this out really well. Um, So you've used the term slut a few times, and I want to ask you what that term means to you and why do you choose to use that label? Sure. So uh,
0: on on one level, I identify as a slut because I like to have lots of sex with lots of different people. Um, And so objectively speaking, when we look at someone who is a slut, I am a slut. On mm-hmm. a more political social justice front, as someone who is white, someone who is of a relatively stable socioeconomic status with a high education, uh, and someone who appears cisgender, even though I identify as uh, genderqueer, I have a lot more privilege than a lot of other people do. So when it comes mm-hmm. to reclaiming a term like slut that is so often used in highly gendered, misogynistic ways, to uh, deter women from being sexual and from embracing their own sexuality, I decide to use slut proactively so that I can challenge people to rethink how it is that they are using it and work on reclaiming the term as a positive rather than as something problematic. Sophie um, mm-hmm. Easton and Janet Hardy talked about a new definition of slut when they wrote the ethical slut. Uh, and, it's been decades and we're still struggling with slut as a term in the way that it is curled as a gendered insult. And so for mm-hmm. me, I love that I have a doctorate and I am a psychologist and I am intelligent and I identify as a slut because it forces people to think twice about what that term means for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit more about your experience being a vet Um, And I believe you've done some work with other veterans uh, in in the field of sexuality.
0: Yes. So uh, my business partner, Harmony, and I started a website called sexandvest.com. And we have been uh, at different conferences in the sexuality field, uh, been presenting panels with the goal of helping folks who work with sexuality and who do sex education and sex therapy be more aware of how to be culturally competent uh, and affirming of people in their practices who are military and veterans. Uh, Mm -hmm. My experience in the sex education and and sex positive world as a veteran has been that no one blinks an eye when I identify as a slut, but when I tell people I'm a veteran, I get some really heinous things said uh, at or around me. there is an interesting way in which because of the often more liberal ethos of sex positive communities, there can be a generally anti-military vibe. And what that means Mm -hmm. is that communities like veterans and militaries who very badly need sex positive education and support and coaching and therapy may feel as though they are unwelcome in those realms. Because Mm. if the person who is running the play party also posts on Facebook that the sole purpose of military operations is to kill black and brown people, you probably are not going to go. Or if you do go, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be out about being a veteran or being in the military Mm -hmm. because it feels too dangerous. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think that part of what our goal is, is to help folks understand how they can understand people in those communities, embrace them, and that, a lot of the ways that we think and talk about things are creating exclusion we may not intend to create.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And can you talk about how um, the epidemic of PTSD affects our veterans' sex lives? Sure. So
0: the first thing I would say is that I think because of the way that it is covered, there is some – I think misunderstanding within the, the civilian population about how common PTSD is or, like, what that means in the long term. Uh, our studies for the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts have shown that at most 20% of the people who see the most combat end up with PTSD. And mm-hmm. in any deployment, there's a large number of people who are deployed who never see any combat at all because they are mm-hmm. people who are working in dining facilities or doing HR-type activities. Um, And so when I was in the military, everyone asked me if what I saw was a ton of PTSD, and I saw some of it, but I wouldn't say that I saw it at a significantly different rate than I see it in the civilian population. Um, Mm. PTSD also, as a a mental illness, is one of the easiest to treat because it has a specific precipitating factor. The treatments Mm. that we have for PTSD that are are most evidence-based Um, That would be prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and EMDR. My experience in using those with both military, veterans, and civilians is that almost everyone who completes a course of treatment recovers fully. Because, again, Mm -hmm. what we're treating is something that evolved very specifically in relation to a specific event. All of the Mm -hmm. symptoms of PTSD are normal reactions to trauma. They just get Mm -hmm. stuck and end up not going away in some people. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So in terms of how PTSD affects sex lives, uh, when people have PTSD, they're often, uh, it tends to go to one of two extremes if they're having issues with sexuality. On the one side, the idea of touching someone and being intimate with someone is so vulnerable that it makes them feel like they're going to fall apart. So they avoid touch Mm -hmm. and intimate sexuality altogether. Mm -hmm. On the other extreme, some people will use sexuality, particularly frequent casual sexuality uh, or sexuality that lets them check out as a numbing behavior, as a way to avoid Mm -hmm. the feelings that they have, Um, the -hmm. same way that people can use other things like drugs or alcohol or video games. Um, All of those are things that um, folks can do in ways that are healthier versus less healthy that are about enjoyment and experience versus numbing and checking out. And so we tend mm-hmm. to see kind of those two extremes that when folks have PTSD symptoms, they, they either cannot tolerate touch and sexuality because it feels too vulnerable or they are using sexuality as a tool to
1: avoid their feelings and to numb out. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so I want to give you plenty of time before we run out of, of the hour here to talk about the classes that you teach. Uh, I believe that you do a lot of, of communication, teaching, and, you know, tell us a little bit more about the the types of workshops and classes you do. Absolutely. So
0: I offer live workshops and classes uh, in different cities when I travel there. If you'd like to see me in your city, you can shoot me a message through my website and let me know. Um, But I also have classes available online. So I have two of them right now. The first one is called Nasty Naughty Negotiation, and this class is all about how to get what you want using Dirty Talk. So if you've ever mm. been curious about, like, how to hone your Dirty Talk skills, if you've ever wanted, like, a bank of words that you could use for Dirty Talk Mad Lib, this is a great <laughs> class for you. What we look at in this class is how to develop our communication skills and then make the things that we're saying and the way that we're saying them fun and sexy and hot so that we're not just, Doing kind of cold, clean negotiation. We're doing negotiation as part of the sex that we're having. Uh.
1: Um,
0: it's a really fun class. Uh, both of my classes are available through sexpositive psych.teachable.com. Uh, mm-hmm. The other class that I have is Your Erotic Voice. And this class is about how do you identify what it is that works for you? How do you know what turns you on? How do you figure out what kind of a voice or approach uh, or thought process or persona fits well for you when you're interacting with different people in the sexual realm? How do you ask for what you want before, during, and after sex? How do you really dive deeply into finding an authentic place of expression? So your erotic voice is, Uh, a much more extensive program uh, where Nasty Naughty Negotiation is usually a single 90-minute to two-hour class. Your Erotic Voice is six 90-minute sessions. And it's got lots of homework for people of all different learning styles and approaches to continue these explorations and dive deeper into who they are as an erotic being and how they can bring that person into the world.
1: Fabulous. Those sound really juicy. (laughs) Yeah, they're wonderful. So, yeah. Um, so we just have a few more minutes uh, left, and I want to give you uh, two or three minutes to talk about how people can reach you. And I believe you have you might have an offer or a gift for our listeners.
0: Yeah, I do. So you can find my stuff at sexpositivepsych.com. That's my website. I am also you know a co-host that? on. Sure. S e x p o s i t i v e P-S-Y-C-H.com. Um, Perfect. I'm a co-host on the Life on the Swing Set podcast, which you can find at swingset.fm. Um, as I said, my classes are available at sexpositivepsych.teachable.com. Uh, and for folks who are listening today, I'm happy to offer you 20% off any of the courses that I teach.
1: Great. And do you also do basic psychotherapy?
0: I do. I offer psychotherapy and coaching either one-on-one or with couples or throuples or whatever you want to bring in. Mm -hmm. Uh, My office is located in San Francisco. Uh, For people who are looking for therapy, I can only offer therapy to people who live in California because of licensing regulations. But if you're looking Mm -hmm. for something that is more appropriate for coaching, so that is uh, any problem that would not meet criteria for diagnosis for a mental illness. So something that's not creating significant impairment in your life. Um, So for coaching, I can offer that to folks
1: anywhere. Great. And you do those those appointments by phone or Skype?
0: So I can do them in my office in person if you're here in the San Francisco area or by phone or Skype as well. Um, I actually use a program called VC instead of Skype because it's a little bit better in terms of its compliance
1: with HIPAA standards for electronic communications. Okay, great. Okay, well, um, Dr. Liz, I really appreciate you being on the show. It was really interesting to hear your approach, and you're a great thought leader and very articulate about um, these issues that so many people are exploring and learning how to master in the non-monogamy world. So thank you so much for gracing us with your wisdom tonight.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Best of luck to you. You too. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do
1: when you win?